Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Three Means of Grace. Here's an opening illustration. You know, most of you have watched football, and you know that the goal of any football team is to outscore their opponents by the end of the game. But some teams do so much better than others. Those who are good at winning the game usually don't do it by accident or merely wishing it were so. But a good football team develops several marks that make it effective. They concentrate on the basics, things like blocking and tackling. Offenses learn how to read defenses, and they learn the value of protecting their quarterback. Good defenses read offenses. They may even give up yards, but they know how to make their stand. They, they learn how to strip the offense of the ball and create opportunities. Fact is, all football teams understand the goal of the game, but only the good ones know how to achieve that goal. They've mastered the marks of a good football team. Well, Christians who take seriously the marks of a faithful follower of Jesus have the final goal in mind. They want to know Jesus more intimately, and they want to learn to be like him by doing what he did and carrying out his instructions. And above all, they want to live for his glory, and they want to learn to take him at his word and trust him. But unlike football, every one of us can reach this goal. God put it within our reach, but in order to reach that goal, what's required? How do we do that? Well, the sad thing is that many Christians spend their lifetime being defeated. They have a nagging sense that things are not as they should be, and so they live like spiritual paupers. And why is that? We're studying the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we've witnessed the birth of an amazing church born in times of trouble and distress. And and yet they had, in these distressing times, grown deep and rich in their faith. They seemed to thrive in the darkest of times, and, and Paul had noticed that. And we began our study, that is, back in chapter 1, and we noticed that Paul and his missionary team were constantly giving thanks for the genuine faith of these new believers. We had noticed their faith, their love, and the enduring hope they had exhibited. He had also noticed how they had actively become imitators of Paul and, of course, ultimately of the Lord Jesus. And here's where my football example works. How did they become like that? How did their faith grow so deep, so quickly, in such a difficult climate, where the culture around them was deeply suspicious of them. Of course, it's the grace of God. We know that. And it's here that my football analogy does break down. It's, it's not about how well we discipline ourselves to know the game or even how talented we are. It's, it's all grace. But God has given us means of grace. And so as we come to 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16, We're going to see that this is Paul's second expression of thanksgiving for the Thessalonian believers. But this second expression of thanks is less of an expression for the kind of faith that Paul sees in them, but rather his expression of some of the reasons why their faith excelled as it did. And so from our vantage point, these four verses of thanks, really, well, they ought to get our attention because these four verses really do tell us some of the normal means of grace that God uses to grow strong, healthy, vibrant, God-glorifying believers in him. Well, having said that, let's read our text. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, 
that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. You know, as I've examined this text, I think we should all be able to spot three important means of grace that help the Thessalonians grow so deep and vibrant in their knowledge of Jesus. And here's the first. They recognized the word of God for what it was. It was the word of God. Look again at verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Now, before we talk about how important this principle is to all Christian growth, well, we need to identify the uniqueness of the Thessalonian situation. When Paul first arrived in Thessalonica, no New Testament book had yet been written. Well, it is true that the entire First Testament had been completed, And the Jewish community had accepted a Bible which is identical to what we might now call the Protestant Old Testament. That is, the 39 books of our Old Testament is exactly the same as the Jewish Bible. Well, perhaps not in the organization of how they package the books, but the words of God are exactly as ours. It's possible that when Paul arrived in Thessalonica that the book of James may not have been written But even if it had been written, none of the Thessalonian Christians had any access to it. Paul may have already written the book of Galatians, but that would have been it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they weren't written yet. There quite simply was no New Testament and no Word of God as we have in our Bible today. And so when Paul says that they received the Word of God, he makes it very clear that the Word of God they had received came directly from the preaching of Paul. The Thessalonians heard Paul preach and teach, and when they heard him, they came to a conclusion. These aren't his ideas. No, no, this was not the word of man or the word of a very informed and insightful Jewish rabbi. See, they believed that when Paul had spoken, his words had come directly from God. Now, we know that Paul was not among the 12 disciples that Jesus had originally chosen. Instead, he was converted some years after Jesus had died and was raised. And so, if we assume that Galatians is the first book Paul wrote, well, we should find Galatians highly instructive to this question of why anyone in the world would think that what Paul taught came directly from God. So, let's go to Galatians 1, 11 to 12. There Paul writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on to explain how that happened, how the resurrected Jesus had appeared to him over a period of three years while he was in Arabia and had given him the unique message that he had for the church. Ah, but was this only Paul's idea? Well, interestingly enough, Peter, who clearly took a great deal of leadership in the early church, had something to say about this very matter. And here, I'm reading 2 Peter 3, 15 to 16. 
Peter writes, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, that is, in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, says Peter. So you see what Peter's saying. He's testifying to the early church that they should teach the writings of Paul as scripture right alongside of everything else that was written in our Bible. Now, I would have so much more to say about this, proving that what Paul truly wrote was scripture, that what he wrote, he wrote because Jesus had personally mentored him and that what Paul and the rest of the apostles wrote is scripture, but that would get us too far afield in this study. So let's for now just recognize that Paul plays a unique role in the building of our Bible. And in truth, the Thessalonians who heard him recognized that this man had been directly chosen by Jesus and was a spokesman of Jesus. But even as I say this, I I am getting at something here. All believers who grow in their faith are deeply committed to this truth. When we pick up the Bible, We recognize it for what it is. There is an inner awareness that this is not just words written by men, but that these men were uniquely superintended by the Holy Spirit, and thus, what we have in our Bible are the very words of God himself. I don't think that it's possible to grow in our faith until we come to that awareness. And once that awareness is there, which I think is brought by the Spirit, Our study of Scripture is the divinely appointed means whereby God causes us to grow. See, let me put it another way. If your Bible's collecting dust on the shelf, if you're not committed to reading it, to studying it, to memorizing it, to listening, to preaching from its pages, and then applying it to your life, you're not growing in Christ. No one who thrives in Christ ever gets there without the Bible. Make the Bible your centerpiece for all worship and devotion, and you'll find yourself following Jesus and growing in Him. Abandon your Bible as the Word of God, and distressing times are going to destroy what little faith you have. June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for Back to the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, We've had to take steps to adjust our expenses so that all the Bible teaching resources you've come to expect remain available right across the country at no charge. And because of a group of generous donors who share our hearts for Bible teaching, they've committed to doubling your gift this month. The ministry budget target for our fiscal year end is $365,000. Could we ask you to pray that we might meet this target? And if you're able, acknowledging the very real challenges many of us are facing, would you provide a financial gift toward this goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $95,000 so that your gift has doubled the impact. To make your fiscal year-end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I was once speaking at a chapel in a Christian college, and after I was done, one student approached me and said that he was genuinely confused by something I had said. Well, I don't want to confuse people, so I asked him to explain. 
And he said, I don't understand your stress on the importance of the Bible. I thought we're supposed to follow Jesus and not the Bible. You know, I have over the years heard numerous renditions of that same theme. Sometimes I've heard some theologians say, you know, we're not bibliocentric, we're Christocentric. And I always smile when I hear that. I wonder if these theologians have ever realized how bibliocentric Jesus was. Listen to his words in Matthew 5:18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Or how about the verse before that one in Matthew 5:17? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which is the scripture that he had. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Or about all those times that Jesus quoted from Scripture? Or how about his words in John 10, 35, where he affirmed, Scripture cannot be broken. The truth is the real Jesus of history was devoted to Scripture and proclaimed himself as the fulfillment of Scripture. And his appointed apostles are ones commissioned to write Scripture. No, no, no. No one follows Jesus unless they're devoted to Scripture. And that was what would happen in Thessalonica. The believers there had the First Testament, and then they had the teachings of Paul, which they would have memorized and carefully followed. And that's the reason their faith was heard about in all the land. And that's why they weren't intimidated by their opponents. And that's why they were filled with faith and love and were persevering in hope. See, the first means of grace that God has appointed for his people is a devotion to the Bible as the very words of God and through which we follow Jesus. And Paul saw a second means of grace, and this one was just a little more complicated to see. So I'll give you my conclusion, and then I'll show you how I got there. Paul saw that the Thessalonian believers imitated or made role models of other Christians who had been successful when they had faced the same situation that the Thessalonians did. So they watched and copied vibrant, God-glorifying, growing Christians who are going through the same things they're going through. So let's look at verses 14 to 16a. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from our own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Now, clearly, there were differences between the Thessalonian believers and the Judean believers. See, the Judean believers were all Jews, but the Thessalonian believers, well, they would have been a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Given that Paul speaks about the great number that have turned from idols to serve the living God, well, you've got to expect that the greater part of the Thessalonian church would have been made up of Gentiles. Another difference would have been the context of the persecution. In Judea, it was the high priest along with the key religious figures that had already made up their minds that they would do anything in the world to stop the church, for they thought of the church as a heresy. That's why they had Stephen stoned. That's why they drove many of the apostles out of Jerusalem. And that's why initially they had given Saul of Tarsus letters to go outside of Judea and arrest and imprison all followers of Jesus he could find. But the situation in Thessalonica was different. And clearly from the perspective of the synagogue in Thessalonica, their reason for opposing the followers of Jesus was no different than in Judea. 
But all that happened in a context of a wider Greek culture. And so we know that even while the synagogue led the way in persecution, they had constantly involved members of the Gentile community in the same. But of course, given these differences, the similarity between what happened in Judea and what was happening in Macedonia was remarkably and eerily similar. See, in both cases, Paul identifies the heart of the problem. He says, it was the Jews. Well, we need to stop here for a moment and consider the beginning of verse 15. There, Paul makes the charge. The Jews, he said, killed both the Lord Jesus and also the ancient prophets of old. You know, a great many sensitive Christians wince at this point. We may remember that during the Nazi Holocaust, the Jews were constantly called Christ killers. And this was then used as justification for rampant anti-Semitism and anti-Semitism that needs to be vigorously opposed at all times. I've said it before, and I want to continually say it, that all Christians owe the people of Israel an infinite debt of gratitude. Paul, I think, said it remarkably well in Romans 9, 4, and 5 when he said, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Think of what we have inherited from Israel. Pause for a moment. Give thanks. Furthermore, in Romans 11, Paul warns Gentile believers against an arrogant attitude toward unbelieving Israel. And furthermore, he says, you don't support the root, the root supports you. Meaning, of course, Israel is the root from which we, the Gentile believers, have received Jesus as Messiah, Lord over all. Let me say it as loudly and as forcefully as can possibly be said. There must not ever be even a hint of anti-Semitism among God's people. In its place ought to be love, prayer for unbelieving Israel, and a willingness to continually be in pursuit of friendship and respect, and even, may I say it, loyalty to the people of Israel. It's the New Testament way. Well, then, if that's the case, what do we make of Paul's words that it was both the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus along with a number of the ancient prophets? See, here we have a problem between understanding the words that were written 2,000 years ago and how those words are understood today. In the New Testament, quite often the word Jew is not used the way we use it today. And very often when the New Testament speaks of the Jews, it's not speaking about Israel as a whole. Rather, Jew specifically refers to the Jewish religious leadership, that is, to the high priests the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the other religious leaders. These were the ones who led the way to put Jesus to death. And as we know, the crowd was fickle, yes. The crowd was easily manipulated, yes. But it was the leadership that put him to death. And that is exactly what Paul means when he said, the Jews killed both Jesus and the prophets. It was those leaders, he said, who were doing everything they could to stop the preaching of the gospel and to stop people from worshiping Jesus as Savior and Lord. And, said Paul, it was these religious leaders who drove us out of Thessalonica. It's the very same kind of people who also drove the apostles out of Jerusalem. And what Paul's able to do here is to showcase what Jesus spoke about in his parable about the wheat and the tares. The tares are not unbelievers in general. 
They're the servants of the evil one who have only one purpose to stop the harvest or severely damage the harvest. So says Paul, you in Thessalonica have been targeted by the servants of Satan. Indeed, Paul says, they were actually enemies of the human race, for they want to stop people from getting saved. And this is the nature of the crisis that you believers are facing in Thessalonica. But you can take hope. You're not the only ones who have ever walked through these difficult times, and you're doing what you should be doing. You're learning how other Christians in your situation are not only surviving but are thriving. It's a great lesson for all believers today. Never isolate yourself. Never believe you're the only one going through the difficulties you're going through. Find out from people who have faced your situation and learn from them, imitate them, celebrate your solidarity with them. So we've seen two means of grace. Live by the word, form a solidarity with people who are successfully going through what you're facing. Now the third, take comfort that God is just and no one is getting away with anything. So don't become a whiner or develop a victim mentality. Look again at the last part of verse 16. But wrath has come upon them at last. That is, wait for the justice of God. It will not delay, but come at just the time that God determines. Here's the good news. God has given you means of grace to pursue a healthy, vibrant, growing, God-glorifying, and successful Christian life. Make use of what He has given you. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that we've canned the term grace as something, for instance, in reference to God's unmerited favor for his children, but not considering or recognizing the ways in which God wants to reveal or express his grace to us. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the phrase means of grace, I mean, I use that in a way that uh, is intended to help us to understand that there are ways in which, I mean, grace is always unmerited, so you've said that, um, but, but there are ways in which God communicates grace to us. So if you think about the first thing, and that is that the Thessalonians recognized that when Paul preached the word, it wasn't just Paul's word, it was God's word. So that was a means of grace. And when we do that as well and recognize this is the word of God, uh, regular Bible reading, becoming familiar with the thoughts of God, giving ourselves to scripture is the way in which grace comes to us. Uh, I think that's important. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Remaining Steadfast in Distressing Times, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope, and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh Again TV channel on YouTube. A new inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.
www.ghostbusinessradio.ca.